recap, assuming most of you all know um, the, the basic framework that we're, we're operating with. But I know there are some visitors or some first-timers. We even have some former Otter Creekers uh, here that are in Salt Lake now. So Summer uh, and Eric Milliken. So say hi to them if you remember them from uh, several years back. Summer helps people read. Uh, so if you're not agreeing with my reading of scripture, you can see her after. <laughs> and Eric is a dermatologist, and he's volunteered to stay after if you want to show him any weird skin discolorations. Uh, so just, just letting you know that. So the brief recap. Um, we recognize that uh, there are some matters in Scripture that are complex, or some matters of faith and practice that are complex, not always easy to navigate. Uh, and part of this class is designed, uh, or, or recognizing that the simplistic answers to complicated questions just, just aren't sufficient. Uh, so pointing to various proof texts out of context just doesn't uh, help us. Uh, appealing simply to how one feels about something is also insufficient. Not that it has no place in the conversation, but by itself is insufficient. Uh, as are appeals to kind of generic platitudes. God is love, therefore, whatever. Uh, so that uh, what I've suggested uh, in this class and in um, the previous two semesters where I was teaching with Matt Hearn and Lauren White is that we attend to the, the biblical or the theological wisdom of, um, that we've inherited from our ancestors in the faith, and we think, uh, how does the biblical plotline, kind of the story from creation to fall to new creation, how does this help give us some um, uh, tools for navigating these difficult issues? And so you see how that gets plotted on the back. Uh, how does the rule of faith, that is, uh, this core Christian teaching that Christians have confessed across the centuries, across cultures, across denominations, how might this help give us some boundaries and some guidance? Um, the coherency of Scripture is a way of, of uh, it's going to be our, our focus today, but it's the idea that at the end of the day, there's going to be some sort of unity among the, the biblical witness, uh, that we're not going to expect the Bible to be talking in, uh, uh, I don't know, contradictory ways, uh, ultimately. Uh, and that guiding all of this, uh, we are attending to the Spirit, we are listening to experience, we are paying attention to the way our ancestors in the faith uh, might give us some wisdom. We are reasoning well. Uh, we are listening to the voice of our local and global uh, Christian community as well as we can. And of course, we are uh, doing so humbly. So, very brief recap. Um, so, last week, uh, we began thinking about how this might help us map our understanding of uh, women's roles in the church, particularly women teaching uh, and in leadership roles. Uh, and so what we, what we saw last week, uh, for instance, we started with the rule of faith, and as we confessed the rule of faith, it reminded us that something has gone wrong, so we must take seriously that things have gone wrong, and that what put it right was God taking on flesh uh, and um, ministering and ultimately going to the cross uh, to overcome sin and death. So it, it kind of backs us up, even before we get too far in the conversation, to remind us that when we talk about leadership uh, in the church, we're thinking about who our leader, as Jesus was. And so if we're thinking about leadership as in who's going to wield power and domineer, uh, then we're already on the wrong foot. Uh, but we think about uh, who um, might follow in Christ's uh, example of leading in sacrificial, loving, uh, serving, humble ways. When we mapped the plot line of Scripture, uh, we were reminded at creation that it was good for there to be 
uh, male and female, that is, embodiment matters, uh, and the distinction between male and female was seen as a good thing. Uh, also, as soon as kind of going with male and female are made in the image of God, we also saw that, that they are given the same vocation. It wasn't one for men, one for women there in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, but both are given the vocation to rule and care for creation. Uh, with the fall, um, we saw that, uh, that part of the consequence of the fall was that uh, the woman would desire the man and he'll rule over her. Uh, and I showed how this language seems to be about uh, this desire to kind of um, domineer. Um, and that we don't necessarily need to read this as a kind of punitive thing. God says, you've made this mistake, therefore you're under this curse forever. But we might also hear it as the natural consequence of sin. When sin enters the equation, it's going to necessarily lead to uh, this kind of breakdown in harmonious relationships. Uh, then as we looked at Israel and Jesus and the church, as we continued to, to map uh, the plot line, what we saw is that uh, for the most part, with Israel, Jesus, and the Gospels, and uh, the New Testament, uh, Acts, and, and Paul, there's primarily male leaders. That, that's the main, um, they're kind of the main ones uh, in leadership roles, but there are, in all of those uh, places along the map, uh, notable exceptions. With Israel, we saw, for instance, uh, Huldah the prophetess, uh, who the king uh, knows to go to when they find the law and they don't know what to do, and she speaks on behalf of God, uh, which is a pretty powerful kind of thing to do. We see Deborah uh, leading Israel and also speaking on behalf of God. When we looked at uh, the Gospels, uh, the twelve are men, so it continues that theme of, of primarily seeing males in this leadership role. And yet, uh, there are women uh, disciples, um, and uh, women are the first uh, witnesses. They're the witnesses, the apostles to the apostles. Um, and this seems to be, as Jesus has women disciples, um, different from the typical rabbinical practice, which might suggest to some uh, that there is the beginning of a, a shift, that, that Jesus is maybe planting seeds for further um, uh, I don't know, roles for women. And the church, uh, the New Testament church, uh, again, mostly male leaders, Paul the Twelve. Um, however, there are some notable exceptions. We have Phoebe, who's a deacon and benefactor. Uh, we have women praying and prophesying. Um, and uh, particularly, we have uh, Junia, who is regarded as outstanding among the apostles. And we'll look a little bit more at that um, today. So, what I suggested uh, when we looked at so that much of the map was that it's not a crystal clear thing that uh, you've got one group of people who's reading the Bible and the other group who's just uh, wanting um, to have it their own way, but, but rather there, there's some complexity here. Um, so at today, our focus is going to be on the coherency of Scripture, uh, thinking particularly about a handful of biblical texts that are often brought up in this argument uh, or in this conversation. Um, and thinking about how that might help us navigate this. I was planning on doing two weeks on this, last week and this week, but as I was preparing, I realized I might need a third week. So I don't know if I'll get to it all today. If not, uh, don't worry. Uh, I'll just stretch this out one more week. Uh, so the, the four texts that um, we will look at uh, will be uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 
and because of time, I'm not going to be able to dedicate a lot to the first three. Um, the next is Galatians 3.28. Uh, after that, we'll look at Romans 16, 1-7. We'll move through these relatively quickly, because I think the primary scripture is 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. Um, through 15. So this is where we'll camp out for most of our time today. Uh, but we'll run through these three. So here Paul uh, calls for women to be silent uh, in the church. Galatians 3.28 is where we'll see there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. Romans 16 is where Paul will give this shout out at the end of his letter. And we'll see Phoebe as a benefactor and deacon uh, and Junia as an apostle. And 1 Timothy 2 is where Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over man because Eve was the one deceived um, and Adam was formed first. So that's a little bit about uh, where we're going in this. Before we get there, uh, I, think, I think we might imagine that there are two ways to navigate what seems to be, if we're going to hold to there being some sort of coherency in Scripture, there might be two ways to make sense of how, on the one hand, Scripture can point to women in leadership, seeming leadership roles, and that there's no more uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, and female. This, those kinds of things that seem to say it's open. Women in leadership and teaching roles it should be open. Um, and holding that in tension with these limitations or prohibitions that Paul puts on women in teaching and leadership roles. So, if particularly we keep in mind that, according to tradition, this is all Paul, and Paul is likely going to be, I mean, he doesn't always make sense, but we assume that he, you know, makes sense if we know how to understand him. How might we then uh, try to make sense of what seems to be some contradiction here? Do you see the problem? So, two, I think there are two broad options we might imagine uh, for how to um, think about there might be coherency here. Uh, the first option would be to see the limitations that Paul puts on women. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority. The option one would be to see these limitations as the standard. This is the, the way things uh, should be in the church. Um, and so, within option one, uh, what one does with uh, these uh, places where you have women, uh, it seems to see women in leadership, women praying and prophesying like you did in Acts, 2 or 1 Corinthians 11, those would be seen as something like um, exceptions that would be explained by assuming that this is either when you have women apostling or teaching, uh, it's only women present. Or it's only unconverted men. I'm imagining some of this sounds familiar to you. So I, I bring this up, uh, not to make light of it, um, but part of what I want to highlight um, is that this is one way of trying to honor the coherency of the canon. And uh, this move cannot escape making an assumption that is not clear in the text. So wherever, when we get to option two, you're going to see the same kind of move being made. 
which we'll look at. Uh, so, option two is that women in leadership. So, women teaching and leading. I'll kind of give this separation here. Women teaching and leading would be the ideal. And uh, the limitations. How does one make sense of the limitations? Well, a bad move would be to say, I just don't agree with Paul here. Uh, because that, that creates a whole, whole series of issues about um, the, the authority of Scripture. Um, so to make that move can open us up to lots of other... It, it, it might fix one problem, but it's, it's like the lady who you know, swallowed a spider to get rid of the fly. And, you know, it, it, so then do we just decide wherever we disagree with Paul, we just, um, we just ignore it? Or uh, one here is then the limitations... How does one explain that? Well, they also must assume uh, that these are situation or culturally specific. That is, Paul does certainly <coughs> say women shouldn't teach or have authority, but he's not saying that's for all churches and all places, uh, but rather, given the circumstances um, in, in Corinth, or in Ephesus, um, we assume uh, that Paul must, must have a missional or a pastoral reason for setting up this rule. So rather than saying Paul's a bigot, we disagree with him, there's missional and pastoral reasons uh, the dealing with that specific situation uh, that leads to that. So, two ways of doing it. Neither one has the high ground as far as we're only reading the Bible. Both so you can't say, well, my Bible has Junius and Apostle. I don't know what you're reading. Um, or, nor can you say, well, my Bible says uh, women should teach or have authority. I don't know what you're reading. We both have to deal with the complexity of this. And to make a coherent sense of Scripture requires both of us to bring in some assumptions that aren't <coughs> clear from the text. Are you with me here? Okay. So then let's think about um, what we do with these four um, Scriptures. I'm going to erase this because uh, this tiny little board is, uh, doesn't give me a lot of space to work with. Spoken like a college professor. <laughs> yes. Any, any mistakes I make, it's going to be blamed on the small board for lack of clarity. Um, all right, why don't we start uh, with, um, we can start with Galatians 328, if you want to flip over there. And we'll back up to verse 26. Uh, and some see uh, Paul is, um, is going to be citing something like an ancient baptismal uh, confession or formula. There's no way to prove that, but there are reasons to see that. It's neither here nor there, but it might make you think that I know more than I do, uh, which gives me a little more authority up here. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, there's more going on here than I can fully unpack. Um, but I might say uh, that, um, that this verse in and of itself 
in my opinion, um, is not sufficient uh, to make the case for what's called egalitarianism. I think you can see this verse as lending itself to that. Um, but it's not enough, I think, especially for people who are going to be kind of on the fence on the issue. It's not like a slam dunk. So here's, here's partly why. Um, maybe, maybe we can, we can see that this lends itself to what we'll call egalitarianism, that is, women should teach and lead, um, because uh, what Paul is teaching here is that the old barriers are broken down, um, and uh, part of those barriers are barriers of status. Um, and he says we are all clothed in Christ. And so if we all bear Christ, might that mean that these kind of hierarchies, uh, who can teach, who can't, who can lead, who can't, those might be broken down as well. I think that is a valid reading, but I would suggest it's maybe not the only valid reading uh, of that, uh, to, to lead it to that direction. Those who might say, yes, but that's moving too quickly or reading too much into it would say, primarily, when we're reading Galatians, the question is who's in the covenant community and who's not in the covenant community. And the focus in Galatians has to do with the Jew-Gentile relationship. Um, and so even as Paul moves in this uh, with the Jew-Gentile relationship, it's not so much about who's going to be in leadership and who's not, but who's really a part of the covenant community and who's excluded from the covenant community. Do you have to be circumcised uh, like part of the old covenant or not? And so uh, those who would say, maybe you're moving too fast, would say because the context isn't dealing with, with that issue or not. Especially because language like uh, verse 26, you are all children of God, is Israel language. Israel was God's children. They were God's son. And even Israel, as God's children, still showed some hierarchy. Priests uh, needed to come uh, from the right tribe, and so forth. So, I would say Galatians 3.28 can lend itself to that, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to that. Uh, so, it's not enough in the conversation, as we're dealing with a complex topic, to just quote this verse and think that seals it. Um, all right. Questions on that before we move on to the next one? Yeah. I think you kind of said it. Uh, I'm not sure... I've never read that verse really even talk about what we're even talking about. But um, I just want to say something. Not that I'm trying to dominate the language, but I don't even like talking about these roles as leadership because I teach my oldest daughter to have leadership, but she has no authority. Mm-hmm. Right? I teach her to lead her uh, younger siblings, but she has no authority right. over them. Right. So you would prefer the language of authority rather than... Yeah, we can just all do what I want to do here. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I see this person in uh, Galatians talking about e- equality of personhood mm-hmm. and humanity um, across gender lines and, and even cultures equal with each other, but not necessarily equal with authority or even what you are supposed to do. Okay. Like, if you would to, you could even say that that would say that I'm on the same authority level with an elder here at Otter Creek. I, I obviously am not. I'm mm-hmm. not even a deacon, right? So I'm a few ring to the ladder below yeah. that authority of an elder. So that's here. so that's a helpful uh, point maybe to say that uh, even if we move outside of the conversation of, of uh, gender, uh, that Paul might say something like this and still see that there is some sort of hierarchical, hierarchical structure 
Um, so yeah, I think that's that's worth bringing into the conversation. So uh, that kind of goes again to my point that um, it can lend itself to this, but it doesn't necessarily uh, end the conversation because of valid um, uh, pushback like that. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, here's another interesting, very strange, um, my guess is most of you all uh, don't spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, as it's telling us how we, um, how we handle uh, prophecy and tongue speaking in worship. Um, the, uh, the particular verses in question are verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right, so um, on, the, uh, on the surface, and maybe uh, this is where you would camp out, what it sounds like Paul saying, <coughs> women don't, they mean seen, not heard, um, What's interesting about 1 Corinthians 14 uh, is that it comes just a few chapters after 1 Corinthians 11, maybe verse 2, where we get, um, let me see, uh, oh, verse 5, where there is reference to every woman who prays and prophesies. Now that's getting into head covering, so I'm not going to talk about that today. But this verse is worth bringing into the conversation because Paul here seems to be saying silent, and just a few chapters earlier seems to recognize that women are not silent, but are praying and prophesying. Uh, so it, it suggests that what Paul is getting at here is not about uh, complete silencing of women, even though this verse, just reading it out of the larger context of 1 Corinthians, would seem to lend itself to that. So, how can Paul say women are praying and prophesying and they're to be quiet at the same time? Um, well, there are a couple ways um, to make sense of this. Option one, remember, uh, would be to make coherent sense of this by assuming that they are only praying and prophesying in front of other women. Um, option two would say uh, that this is a situation-specific uh, limitation uh, and what brings us about seems to be something about the disorderly way in which it's done. Uh, and so the reason that one might lean towards that reading is because verses 34 and 35 uh, fall in a chapter that's all about orderliness, uh, but even more uh, closer to that, verse 33, God is not a God of disorder but of peace. Uh, and then at the end of this, verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Um, and so the verses themselves, 34 and 35, uh, one way to read this is to assume, remember we're assuming either way, uh, that the disorderliness uh, seems to be about um, women who are perhaps interrupting, um, and they are, these are maybe specifically wives, who are interrupting and asking lots of questions um, in a culture where women would have been, uh, by and large, less educated. Uh, and so it's saying something like... <coughs> Instead of interrupting the teaching, wait 
until you get home and have this explained to you so that there's a kind of orderliness to how teaching goes on. Um, so, you know, the principle applies here. If you have a question that I don't know the answer to, don't ask it so that it seems like I'm teaching in an orderly way uh, rather than making me look bad. Um, so, just as some would maybe use this as the, like, this ends the conversation, egalitarian, I would say, no, no, let's, let's pull that back a little bit. It's, it's not that clear. And as some might point to 1 Corinthians 14 and say, that ends the conversation. It's complementarian. It's not egalitarian. I'd say, no, no, the context uh, and Paul's language just a few chapters earlier suggests that that's too hasty of a reading of this. We're still left with some ambiguity. Yeah. What I'm about to say is not something I believe. I'm just uh, looking at, you know, being circumspect in uh-huh. ways that people could take it. Uh, you could also say, well, yeah, in the earlier verse he said they're doing it, and then he's saying they shouldn't. It could just be that he's saying, yeah, that's happening, but it shouldn't be, would be another assumption a person could make. Yeah, I I think you could make that assumption. I just, I don't think it fits as weird as that whole head covering it thing is. It seems as though he's saying, uh, He's taking it for granted that this is how it's done. So it's not when women pray or prophesy they shouldn't, but when they do it, here's how they do it appropriately. Um, so that would be, I think that would probably lead to a, a bad reading. I think it'd be a bad argument. <laughs> yes. Someone could yeah, yeah, you could make that, yes. Could there be a difference in the audience that he's writing the letter to? So, um, meaning what? Well, like he writes to the Galatians, then he writes to the Ephesians, then he writes, he writes to different people in different churches yes. that have different circumstances and different problems. Yeah, so that's what, um, that's kind of where option two is. It's the situation-specific kind of thing that would lend itself to saying, uh, in Corinth, uh, Paul makes this prohibition because what's happening there seems to be creating disorder. Um, and then uh, when he's sending Phoebe uh, to the Romans... That's not an issue, so Phoebe can be the benefactor, the deacon, the letter reader, uh, as we might see. So yes, the different circumstances might lead to different um, practices. So especially when we camp out here on 1st MP2, I'll I'll talk about that more. Yeah, so you are leaning towards option two in that case, would be the assumption uh, to make that coherent. Okay, Romans 16. Hopefully you're seeing none of of what I'm doing is exhaustive. It's just... um, my, my own sense of um, maybe sadness at the way that sometimes these conversations get carried out uh, where there's polarization or there is, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, there, there is kind of viewing the other as, I don't know, an enemy or as a bigot or as a liberal or that, that labeling uh, that <coughs> rather than us going through this wisely and thinking about uh, the difficulty of this um, and not settling for simple answers or um, yeah, not maybe hurting others or turning a deaf ear to others in the process. Um, Romans 16, I will in particular uh, highlight uh, verses um, 1 and 2 and verse 7. Here, uh, those... Um, here we have a couple of women who seem to have some sort of, of uh, maybe beyond leadership, authoritative, or at least teaching role, uh, arguably. 
So I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Uh, so Paul is sending Phoebe, who's a deacon, um, which there are deacons and deaconesses, so that just means servant. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, any sort of office. Uh, that she is a benefactor um, can imply some sort of honorable status, possible uh, authority, but not proven. Uh, it can lend itself to that reading, but doesn't prove it. Um, and if he is sending her, the way the ancient postal service worked, you send a letter with someone you trusted, and they delivered it, so you didn't put like a stamp on it and give it to, um, oh, what would that be, RPS, Roman Postal Service, and they carried it for you. Um, so uh, the letter, the person carrying the letter can be the, sp the letter reader and the letter explainer. So it's very possible that Phoebe, who is being commended here, bringing the letter would not only be reading it to the congregation, but explaining it, which wouldn't that be nice to have someone who was there when Paul was writing Romans to say, oh yeah, let me fill in the gaps here. Um, not certain, uh, but that would fit uh, some ancient practice. Uh, more significant is verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So here, Junia uh, is a female. Um, that's pretty established now, although there was some time when some were wondering, this surely can't be a female. This must be a male name, uh, and just there isn't. There's just all kinds of women named Junia, uh, but the idea that this was a man named Junius is just undocumented. So uh, seems almost... Um, <coughs> unarguable. This is a female who is described as an apostle. So the way Paul uses the language of apostle, he doesn't just limit it to the 12, but sometimes he can talk about apostle uh, the way he might like in 1 Corinthians 15, being one of the apostles, that is those who have seen the risen Christ and who have been given uh, this mandate to go and spread the good news. Or, if you remember um, the, uh, the gift list in Ephesians 14, first of all, apostles and prophets and teachers. So it does seem to have this uh, place near the top of the, uh, the chain if we're reading Ephesians right. Um, now, does this prove uh, that she was uh, for certain in this kind of authoritative, or that apostle means this authoritative role? Not definitively, but it lends itself to that. Um, so... Uh, apostle can mean messenger, but that would be a really weird way of saying outstanding among the apostles. It seems as though she has some sort of particularly honorable, gifted status in the church uh, that Paul recognizes. So, if you're option one and see Junia as the exception, you're thinking, well, she can only be an apostle to unconverted men, and then maybe once they convert, she no longer has that authority over them. Um, if you're uh, option two, you're saying, look, this, these are the kind of glimpses that we get that help us see that women should be in these places of, um, of teaching and uh, authority. Um, and so the limitations are there because of situation-specific issues. So with that, uh, let's spend the last maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes. We will definitely take this into week, to a third week, uh, looking at 1 Timothy 2. <coughs> Josh, yeah. Do you know enough about that scripture? I, I a lot of times read that scripture to mean she was regarded by the apostles. Yeah. So the the Greek there is not. So that's 
that would be seen as a, um, a not convincing way of reading the Greek. Uh, so I, I read up on that, and it was pretty clearly the early fathers read her as, the people who knew Greek the best read her as among the apostles, not viewed by the apostles. So uh, it certainly lends itself to, um, or is to be, it's almost certainly to be read as she's among the apostles, not viewed by the apostles as outstanding. Great question. Um, so First Timothy 2. We'll back up to verse 8, because this is the larger, or slightly larger context. I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And here's the 11 and 12 are particularly relevant to the conversation. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Yours might say silence. Quietness is definitely the better translation there. It shows up in verse 2, nine verses earlier, about having a quiet attitude. So it would be really weird if he goes uh, from quiet to silence. So with quietness, it's about demeanor. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach uh, or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So you should, after reading this, unless you've studied it a lot, have lots and lots of questions about what Paul is talking about. And if you've studied a lot, you have lots and lots and lots and lots of questions uh, about exactly what Paul is getting at here, particularly verse 15, um, save through childbearing. So uh, I want to bring in two points uh, into this conversation. If you're option one, uh, this is... You're saying, yeah, this is part of my arsenal. Arsenal's a terrible word. Uh, this is part of, of what kind of leans me towards seeing the limitations are the ideal. If your option two, is there a way of reading this and seeing this as situation specific? Uh, and I would say, yes, there are. And let me, let me explain how those of option two might read this. Um, the first thing to bear in mind is that uh, the surrounding context is fairly clearly... I'll say situation-specific, meaning uh, this seems to be very much about what's going on in the culture. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2.8, here, I'll, I'll map this out. So here's our surrounding context. Here is the... the uh, the call for quietness and submission. So, what I'm, what I'm going to try to show, I don't think it's too hard to show, is that verse 8, verses 9 through 10, and verse 15 seem to be fairly uh, clearly situation specific, at least the way that most of us in this room read it. So, Paul will say, I want men to pray everywhere lifting hands. Lifting holy hands. So, most of us don't see Paul making a legalistic claim that every time we pray, we lift up holy hands. Fair enough? Not controversial? This is not saying that this doesn't speak to us today. There is a universal principle here uh, that when we pray, we come with a certain level of, of holiness or sincerity. Uh, but the lifting holy hands, we see as that was a situation-specific uh, um, address that Paul was making. Even though, even though 
Paul says, everywhere. We still think the principle applies everywhere, but the actual expression is situation-specific in Corinth. Further, in verses 9 and 10, the gold and the braids uh, and the pearls, which in Greek is margaritas, so I'll just put that up here. <laughs> Surely we don't want to say Paul prohibits margaritas in all times and cultures. Can I get an amen? Um, now, there are churches that would say, no, this is, this is cross-cultural. But for most of us in here, uh, we think what Paul is saying has universal, a universal principle. That is, um, this seems to be about either showing status or looking like a cult prostitute. It's kind of hard to tell which it is. But either don't be seductive or don't show off how wealthy and high status you are. But the, the expression of it is situation-specific. So... Um, there are completely, uh, we could still break this rule, even if one doesn't wear gold braids or pearls. Um, but my point is that we recognize this is largely situation specific. 1 Timothy 2.15, after Paul then says this, um, it's about women will be saved through childbearing. This is one of the most bizarre verses. Um, I do think I have a sense of what's going on. If I have time to get to it, I will. But I don't know anyone who says, um, hear, believe, confess, repent, be baptized, have babies. Uh, most of us don't think you are literally saved through childbearing. We think, okay, there's got to be something else going on here. The most likely explanation, uh, when we read elsewhere in... Um, and the pastorals in 1 Timothy, what we see is that there's an anti-marriage movement uh, that is part of the, uh, the kind of heretical Christian practice in the first century. Anti-Christian. We don't get married. Uh, and so Paul will use something like childbearing as a way of, uh, it's a catchword. He'll do it again in, in chapter 5. Say something like, marriage is good. And in this particular situation, this is a good thing to be a part of. Again, this seems to be situation-specific, not only because we don't think every woman needs to bear children to be saved, but even in 1 Corinthians, another letter, another situation, Paul will say it's better not to get married. So Paul can say, in Corinth, the, the kind of missional pastoral wisdom looks like this. And in Ephesus, as he's writing to those uh, in this letter of 1 Timothy, the missional kind of pastoral wisdom uh, is, to, is to get married. This is, this is the better solution. So... If you can agree with me that this is context, or this is culturally specific, and this is culturally specific, and this is culturally specific, <coughs> then it lends itself to us thinking maybe, maybe there are culturally specific reasons why Paul says this. So it's not that um, that those of us who might um, who might lean more egalitarian just want to wipe this away. But we say, well, there are reasons that might lend to the assumption. We're all making assumptions, but there are reasons that might lend to that assumption. And the, the context itself doesn't, it would seem like it might be odd to go situation-specific, situation-specific, universally, cross-culturally binding, situation-specific. Um, so it could be. And I don't want to, I mean, it's silly to say it that way, but uh, I'm not trying to make light of that position. I'm just saying that there that those of us who hold that um, aren't doing so naively or um, uh, blindly. 
just because we want to see that. So that's, that's one, for those who are on option two, this is one reason why one might lean this way. The second reason related to this, the second thing that, uh, that adds to the strength of this is that there is evidence of a situation-specific problem that targets women. <clears throat> evidence of a situation-specific problem that targets women. In other words, in both the biblical witness itself and through cultural study, there are reasons that you can say, oh, this assumption actually has some weight behind it, some reason to go this way. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 2 Timothy 3, 6, and both of these, so we're reading in 1 Timothy 2, remember, so when Paul writes to Timothy and Ephesus elsewhere, we see uh, that this false, false teachers uh, and false teaching is targeting women. So, um, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And especially, that's 1 Timothy 4, 7. Especially 2 Timothy um, 3, 6. Um, oh, did I get the wrong one here? Um, no, I'm in yeah. 1 Timothy. Good, no, 2 Timothy. I just hadn't flipped the page. Um, so he's talking about false prophets who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by evil kinds of desires. So we already see, oh, maybe when Paul says women should be silent, um, he is speaking uh, because he knows of a problem going on there. Okay, I'm going to try to go through this in three. Yes? Is there any evidence that can support when it talks about women being saved through childbirth that that term saved there is not salvation by faith in Christ, but rather like, because they're talking about women being loaded down with sin, and a lot of times childbirth is when a new sense of purpose, and so it may mean yeah. is there any evidence that could support that it just means your life on earth? So I, I guess I would say there's lots that saved could mean there, um, and rather than um, but if you want to talk about that after, I can give you the, the rundown of the options. Um, so maybe I should just pause it here. Uh, as much as I want to keep moving, um, I, think, I think this needs to wait um, uh, to see. But you're, you're getting a sense of how option one and option two, both people who care about Scripture, both trying to be sincere in their reading of Scripture, and both have to make assumptions about the best way to read Scripture. Um, and so we'll continue this, and we'll do, my plan is to do a lot more Q&A next week, uh, because I'm sure this raises a lot of questions, and uh, I want to make space for that. So I'll continue uh, this, which has about 10 minutes left. I will suggest from that uh, what the flexible range might be, and then we will uh, talk about uh, whether I'm a heretic or, uh, <laughs> or a good guy. All right. Yeah.